Who's seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Raise your hand. Let me see. Um, this powerful movie walks, walks us through the last hour, hours of Jesus' life. And, uh, I mean, it needs to be age appropriate, right? But I recommend that everyone watches it and watches it many, many times. And as it, as it walks us through the last hours of Jesus' life, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed how every single time, I'm amazed how in control Jesus was, even when the events were spiraling, spiraling out of control. You may remember that the religious leaders were, they were vengeful and plotting. Soldiers were angry and, and violent, and, and the disciples were confused and, and afraid, but still Jesus never, never lost his cool. At, at one point, when, when the guard came to get Jesus in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers showed up, and they got into a little bit of a of, of tussle, kind of a, a little mini rumble with the disciples, and impetuous Peter, he whips out his sword and immediately cuts off the ear of like the servant of the, the high priest. And I mean, can you imagine like the ears, I assume, on the ground and blood is everywhere and, and everyone's freaking out and there's Jesus, just really cool. He just reaches over and I don't know if he like picked up the ear and boop, put it back on or just touched it and recreated a new, I don't know. <clears throat> but I mean, he's just cool as a cucumber. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't like Jesus was helpless. Like a lot of people want us want us to make Jesus out to be just some kind of some kind of prophet who just things got out of control and he he couldn't do anything about it and but that wasn't the case. At one point in Matthew Matthew's gospel chapter 26 and verse 53 Jesus says, "Do you, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of of angels. A legion was 6,000 angels. That 72,000 angels, I, I think it would only take one. But Jesus could have called down 72,000 angels to immediately incinerate his foes. But he doesn't. And every time I read this or watch this, I start to outwardly cheer for Jesus to incinerate them. Anyone else do that? Anyone else do that? I mean, what's wrong with us, right? It does remind me, though, of the sons of, of thunder, James and John. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is he's marching upward towards his last week, towards his last hours, and he sends some disciples ahead to a Samaritan village to receive him. And the, the Samaritan village says, no, we don't want you. And, and James and, and John very lovingly say, well, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Um. Call me crazy, but I think they, they flunked the mercy test, right? Later, when he's face-to-face -face with Pilate, Jesus continues to show that he's in control. You ready for this? By remaining quiet. John chapter 19 and verse 9, Pilate is literally disarmed by his demeanor. Where, where do you come from? He, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't, don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Now, this is a whole other message, but isn't that a myth, right? <laughs> the, power, 
the power people of this world are like, I can do whatever I want to God's people and to, to God's Messiah. No, you can't. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Then for the rest of the time, Jesus is bounced back between Herod and Pilate and Pilate and, and Herod. And still, he doesn't, he doesn't say much, right? And he fulfills the prophecy given in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So when I think of the last hour, hours of Jesus' life, I'm, I'm reminded of how Jesus was calm, cool, collected, and, and quiet when he could have right, rightfully com, complained. I'm reminded that he could have wiped out the evildoers, but I'm also reminded of our, our third beatitude this morning. If you haven't turned there already, please turn in your Bibles or your Bible apps to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. Before we get there, just to set the stage a little bit, um, scholars call this kind of a sermon within a sermon. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. He's on a, on a mountainside. He may have been literally at the, at the bottom of the mountain preaching up at the Sea of Galilee, preaching up to people on the mountain. And there were thousands and thousands of people. Boy, his voice must have really projected and he gives what scholars call the greatest sermon ever. Literally, the Sermon on the Mount, but there's a sermon within the sermon called the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, Jesus said, blessed, literally the word blessed there means happy. Happy are the meek, for they will in inherit the earth. Well, welcome back to our series in the Beatitudes as we've been learning in this series. These, these statements, these beatitudes spoken by Jesus describe, uh, this is interesting, what it actually means to be a Christian. And, and I want us to notice that Jesus doesn't focus on out, outward performance like we do. Like that would have been easy, right? Like Jesus doesn't go, man, whoo, look at that guy pray. Wow, hey, that gal can serve. Man, let me show you somebody who gives. Check that, boy, they can. Did you see my servant, how they worshiped? Hands up in the air like they just don't care. I mean, come on. He doesn't do that. He doesn't go to those, those tangible outward things that, that we often go to when we gauge somebody's life. Not as though, not, not, not that any of those things were wrong. But that's not where Jesus goes. His concern is much deeper as he lays out what a disciple should be on the inside. And you know, you could imagine the audience that he was preaching to. There were definitely people from all the outlying villages there and near the Sea of Galilee. But there were there were Pharisees. There were there were religious leaders. There were men with robes and phylacteries and had some flunkies. Literally, they would have paid flunkies around them that when they would give, that people would blow a horn. Ba, 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 ba. He's giving. Look at this Pharisee. He's giving money. Look at this Pharisee. Look how good he teaches. Look, look how he prays. They would stand. 
they would stand, the Bible tells us, on the street corners and they would pray for, 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 to, to be seen and to be heard by everybody. Jesus says, hey, by the way, that's not a mark of a believer. So, uh, a little more review. So far we've seen that a follower of Jesus is someone who is, three weeks ago we saw this, who is poor in spirit. That is, they, they recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy. Last week, Jim also showed us that the followers of Jesus, and he, he interviewed Chad and, and Angela Emhoff. Wasn't that good, by the way? How good was that? Powerful. And he showed us through them that followers of Jesus, they mourn over their, their own sin, but they also mourn over the condition of others, and they weep for a very broken world. So this morning, we're going to see that a follower of Jesus is also someone who is is meek. Let's look at that beatitude again. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. Jesus said, Blessed, happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Okay, a little time out here. We need to just be really honest for just a moment here. Um, this, This beatitude is difficult for us to grasp, isn't it? And so often we think of the word meek, it rhymes with what? Weak. I think someone said beak. No, not beak, weak. (laughs) Sleek. (laughs) When we think of the word meek, we, we think of the word weak. And I thought, you know, this is crazy. I've been in pastoral ministry for a long time, and I've never done a super, super deep dive on this word. And, and I, I thought, well, maybe, maybe Webster's can help me out. And so I went to Webster's Dictionary and uh, looked at the, the, the synonym of this. And here's the synonym. You ready? Check it out. Um, blessed are the docile. Wait a second. The submissive, the mild, the timid, the soft, the lowly, the plain, the passive. It gets even better. Blessed are the wishy-washy and spineless. So before we go any further, let's go back. Let's take it back to Jesus' culture a little bit before, a little bit after, right in the middle. And we're going to work, keep working towards definition this morning of this word, this concept called meekness. So I'm going to go real slow here, okay? To the ancient Greeks, meekness describes a virtue that lay midway between two extremes. Really important. The meek person was neither timid, one extreme, nor given to fits of anger, another extreme. Aristotle defined this as the absence of excessive anger. He, he also said it meant, this is really good, getting angry at the right time for the right reason in the right way. The Greeks also used the word to describe four characteristics or four aspects. This was common in, in Greek literature. Uh, to describe, uh, number one, mild words. Number two, soothing medicine. Three, refreshing wind. And four, a horse that has been, that has been tamed. You say, well, what do these four things have in, have in common? All four of these things can either be a blessing or a curse. They can be good or bad. Right? I mean, like our words. Like, man, our words can just be fountains of encouragement and, and joy and, and uh, insight and wisdom. Or they, they can cut like a knife. They can destroy. 
medicine, right? If you take too much, it can be bad. If you take too little, it's not effective. If you take just the right amount, it heals. And in the wind, a gentle breeze, uh, you're like, man, wow, it's, it's hot out, but this, this feels okay. A uh, massive gust blows my house down, not so good. Um, horse, you're like a, a, a wild stallion scares the, just the tar out of me. But a uh, horse with a, what's it called that goes in there? Bridle, a bit. You can see what a horseman I am. And so uh, is tamed. And you, you go, hey, that's pretty cool. Still very powerful. Don't stand behind the horse. Don't get the horse spooked, right? But you're sensing this, this balance. In the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 37, which most scholars think Jesus is referring to, the equivalent Hebrew word is used to describe a person who is submissive to the will of God. The meek person, in other words, has yielded their their rights to God. They keep silence so that they may speak later when appropriate. The meek person has no need to insist upon upon their own way. Let Let me give you three Three words to to define meek. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Power under control. It's not weakness. It's not being docile or spineless or wishy-washy or soft. It's, It's power under control. The meek person has enormous power, but he or she only uses it when when they need it. Okay, let's put a, a face. To meekness. What, is it, what does it look like? Let's start, start in the Old Testament. By the way, um, in the entire Bible, this is pretty wild, only two people are called meek. Who do you think one of them is? Come on, you can do this. Flannel graph, Jesus. Jesus! If in doubt, always go Jesus, right? Come on! Who do you think, you Bible scholars, who, who's the other person? Moses, the mo-man, right? Take a look at the scripture. Numbers chapter 12, and, and this kind of blew me away. Verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek. Not only that, he was, he was more meek than every single person on the planet at the time that was written. You're like, wait a second. The mo-man? Are you serious? Didn't that dude with his bare hands kill an Egyptian, dig a grave, throw him in the grave and bury him up? Yeah, he did do that. Didn't he go face to face, not one, but like 11 times with the most powerful man on the face of the planet, Pharaoh? Let my people go! Didn't he take the children, millions of grumbling Jews, oy vey, through the Red Sea into the will? Come on! Oh, and this is hard for you to believe, but Jewish people can complain a lot. I know it's crazy, it's crazy. They'll do that. This is the same guy who climbed Mount Sinai and went face to face with God. Heard the the commandments. I'm sorry, but when I think of meekness, I don't think of Moses. So what's what's going on here? We need some more context here in, in Numbers chapter 12. This is really, really important. It helps for us to know the background. In Numbers chapter 12 and verse 1, it tells us that Moses had married a Cushite woman. By the way, a Cushite is a, is a black African person. His decision was criticized openly by his brother, Aaron, the high priest, and his sister, Miriam. Let's, let's, let's read it together. I'll read it. You listen. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, verse 1, because of the Cushite woman 
whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord, now they're, now they're just starting to preach, right? Now they're just starting to, you know, complain. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Next four words, frightening for me. Frightening. Hey, Ruth, you know, I was just thinking about Jimmy, and bless his heart, I love, I love Jimmy, but he's a real idiot. Someone say that for me, the next four words. And the, and the what? Just between Ruth and I, I was just talking with her, and we're married, right? And just decided that, that so-and-so is, you know, just don't like him and just don't feel comfortable about him. Or maybe it's a family member, or maybe, God forbid, it's one of my own children. Or I, I don't know, maybe it's someone on staff. And yeah, come on, Ruth, it's just you and me, and, and I'm just going to take them to task. And the Lord heard it. Words have consequences. They have consequences. When spoken, when spoken, they not only potentially can hurt in the moment, but they lead to a pattern, a pattern of defaming people made in the image of God, and God hears those words. Now, before we go on, please note that the criticism stems partly from the fact that Moses had, had entered into an interracial marriage. Though, here's what I found as I did an even deeper dive as I studied this. Most commentators passed over this. But they weren't being very biblical. They weren't being uh, good scholars. They weren't exegesing, pulling out of the text like they should have. Because the text explicitly says that it was Moses' marriage that caused the criticism. But Moses wasn't wrong to marry the Cushite woman as long as she joined him in worshiping the God of Israel. While the Bible does forbid unequal yoke, an unequal yoke of a believer deliberately marrying an unbeliever, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it does not forbid Christians to marry across racial or ethnic lines. For the Christian, the issue is always, always, always our heart towards Jesus, not skin color or ethnic origin. The Bible says in John chapter 4 that we worship God in spirit and truth, not in color and ethnicity. We don't, come on, spit that word out. This is a tough word to say. I knew it as I said it. I was not going to land this word well. Can I get a hallelujah? Amen. So what happens? This is frightening as well. God calls Moses and Aaron, the high priest, and Miriam to the tabernacle. This is principal time. And he, he uses, he, he gives these words to his two critics, Numbers chapter 12 and verse 6. And he, God, said, hear my words, if they're is a prophet among you. I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. 
That's normal prophet stuff. But let me tell you how special Moses is. Not so with Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him, are you ready for this? I speak to him directly. What? Be careful with the Lord's anointed, right? When I, with him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Whoa, Moses. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Touch not the Lord's anointed. Be very careful. Be very, if it's a sin issue, if it's heresy, then you, you lovingly rebuke man, woman, whoever may bring a, a false whatever word about God or living a life that's sinful. But other than that, be very careful. This is a devastating rebuke to Aaron and Miriam. He says, I speak to Moses face to face. He's my main man. I, I trust him with the future of my people. If I want to say anything about his wife, I'll do it myself. You keep your mouth shut. Who are you? I don't need your help. Why do you think you even have an opinion about his marriage? Now the hammer's about to come down. Get ready, here comes the judgment. I'm not gonna read this out, I'll just explain it. But verses nine through 12, Miriam will be stricken with, with leprosy. Literally, the text says that she is white, white as snow. In that culture, a death sentence. It's significant that Miriam now is white as snow. Why? <clears throat> to me. It's as if God has said to her, Moses' wife is black, and you think white is better. Fine, you're gonna be white all over. Hello, albino. That's, that's what's going on here. It's a judgment fitted to the sin of racial prejudice. God despises the attitude of those who look down on others. It's just mind-boggling to me. Your skin is black. Your skin is red. Your skin is white. And because of that, I look down on you. How deep in the pits of hell does that have to come from? You kidding me? We learn this, right? We know better. First Samuel, we just got, got done studying first and second Samuel. First Samuel 16, 7. The Bible says that God, He, he looks, He looks where? At the heart, not at the appearances. Suddenly, I love this, Aaron has a change of heart about Moses. When he realizes that he's been on the wrong side, he quickly becomes Moses' best friend. And what does he say to Moses? He says, Moses, please pray for Miriam that she might be healed. So, so Lee, hold on a second. You've been preaching. Bring it back. What does all this have to do with Moses and meekness? Are you ready for this? While all this is going on, what is Moses doing? Nothing. Nothing. He hasn't said a word. As a matter of fact, his first recorded words come in verse 13. Check this out. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. Please. Well, 
minutes before she's trying to stage a coup with Aaron to topple Mo. Huh? It's at this point that we see Moses' greatness. Here's just some things that he exhibits. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't answer his critics. He didn't get angry. He didn't seek revenge. He didn't, he didn't argue to try and explain his actions. He didn't complain about his unfair treatment. So what does he do? He prays for his persecutor. All he does is pray. Moses normally was a man of action, but here he refuses to defend himself. He didn't have to. God defended him. That's biblical meekness. Okay, we've looked at the Old Testament example of Moses. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, wow, Lee, whew, this is difficult. You say only one of two people on the planet are are in the Bible are ever mentioned to be meek and, and one was Moses and the other is Jesus. How does, this, how does this work for me? As a child of God, how do I cultivate meekness in, in my, own, my own life? Um, four ways. Four ways. Number one, this is obvious, but it's really important. We, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Though Jesus gave himself a number of uh, what we would call figurative titles such as the good shepherd or the, the light of the world or the bread of life. <clears throat> when it comes to actually describing his character with spe- specific virtues, there are very few self-portraits. But, but listen, listen and look at Matthew chapter 11. Here Jesus, he describes himself, right? He says, come to me, verse 28, all, who, um, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now here's the description. For I am gentle, I'm humble in heart, and, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my, my burden is light. In verse 29, Jesus says, um, for I am gentle. Gentle in the Greek is translated meek. When an ox accepted the yoke, it modeled meekness. It was still very, very powerful, but it's, it's power. When he accepted the yoke, its power was now under the control of somebody else Here, here's what here's what Jesus is saying I want you to hook your yoke up with me so that we can walk side by side you see it, when you make a choice as a child of God to yoke up with Jesus here's what Jesus says I'm going to walk with you I'm going to walk with you in the valleys I'm going to walk with you in the mountaintop experiences, in the joy, the pain, the sorrow, the death. The, the ha- I'm going to walk with you. <clears throat> this, this gets good. And as you continue to yoke up with me, when you make a decision each and every day to die to your sin, to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirits, when you make a decision to practice habits of righteousness and yoke up with me, Jesus I'm saying no to Lee. I'm saying yes to Jesus. When you do this, Lee, I'm going to walk with you on all these paths, and here's what's going to, transferal is going to take place. My meekness will become your meekness. But Lee, only if you're yoked. Only if you're yoked. 
You say, well, what's the problem? As believers, often we say, whoo, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, I'll just take my yoke back and I'll carry it. And we're doing this. Oh, this is really heavy. Man, it's, it's really heavy. I can't, what's going on here? And Jesus said, well, no, 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 no. Give it to me. Just yoke up with me. And that yoke, those burdens, the trials of life, the joys of life, I'll keep them all in perspective as we're yoked together. And as you walk with me, what will begin to flow out of you is meekness. Boy, not only that, my teachings aren't heavy. But, but they're easy. You see, when you're yoked to me, my teachings feel easy. When you're not yoked to me, not so much. With me, easy. Without me, not so much. With me, wow, I can do this thing called the Christian life. Without me, God, you're unfair. God, your commands are strict. God, you're burdensome. God, this is hard. God, why did you? With me, easy. Without me, tough. Tough. And I, always, I find this interesting. Then who gets the blame when we take our own yoke? Who gets the blame? God. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> what? Come on, come on. Just jump on my back. No. And oh, by the way, imagine because life is hard. Jesus says, give me your burdens and I'll give you, a race. I'll give you a rest. I love this quote by A.W. Tozier in his book, The Pursuit, of, the Pursuit of, of God. It's so good. He says, and I quote, Jesus calls us to, to his rest and meekness is his method. Well, what about striving? What about busyness? What about I can't say no? What about, what about, what about, what about taking my yoke on myself? What about, what about? No, no. No, no. Jesus calls us to his rest, and meekness is his method. The meek man cares not at all. By the way, this is, these next three lines, unbelievable. The meek man cares not at all, or woman, who is greater than he or she, for he or she has long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. And not because they're angry, you know, right? But literally, they've been so yoked to Jesus and walking in his meekness that they're so meek that they don't care what the world thinks. Like the older I get, and I praise the Spirit of God working in me, making me more like Jesus, the older I get, the more I just, I, I just don't really care what you think. And you're like, well, pastors have to care what people think. No, 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 they don't. They need to care what King Jesus thinks. And when you care what King Jesus thinks and you're yoked to King Jesus, then you come alongside the sheep and you shepherd properly. But if I'm trying to shepherd the sheep based out of fear of the sheep, then I can't shepherd you properly and bad things happen. This gets weird. He goes on to say that the rest Christ offers is the rest of meekness, the blessed relief that comes when we, this is so good, when we accept ourselves for what we are and we cease to pretend. Ah. Oh. If we want to be meek, the first thing we do is we, we look to Jesus. We look at his example. We look at his life. 
Second thing we do is, this is really important, we receive and believe the word of God. If we want to be meek, then it's essential that we cultivate a submission to God's word. James chapter 1 and verse 19, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, uh, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There are two Greek words translated receive. One has the idea of grasping and reaching out. It's what um, some of us do with the Bible as we study the facts and we put them in our heads. That's really good. But what's going on here in this passage? Um, This word for receive means to welcome with meekness. And it has the idea not of taking, but welcoming. Let me just ask us real quick. Have we welcomed the word of God into our lives regardless of what it says? I was reading the other day. This is becoming more and more and more cultural amongst people who claim to know and love Jesus. It's really fascinating to me. It's very frightening to me. But I was reading um, a blog and this person basically said this, I know and love Jesus, but there's a lot of things that I don't agree with. And if it doesn't fit my narrative, then it must not fit God's narrative. <laughs> like if, if I don't feel it's right, then it couldn't be right for God to do, to allow, to accept, to whatever. Huh. If we want to grow in meekness, we must yield to scripture, not yield to culture, not yield to uh, my feelings, my narrative, not yield to what a guy down the street says who I really like and I think he's kind of nice and, well, you know, I I don't want to upset. When we yield to God's word, it produces meekness. It produces gentleness in our lives. Thirdly, if we want to be meek, we must live by the spirit of God. Paul writing to the church in in Galatia, the churches in Galatia says this, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, these things that come out of a believer as they walk in the Spirit. Oh, by the way, gentleness or meekness and self-control against such things, there is such things, there is no law. Let me just ask you, and this isn't judgment, I just want to help you here as I help myself, when's the last time you prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You say, well, what is that? Is that some kind of weird, kooky, charismatic thing? No. It's just biblical. You say, well, what does it look like for you? I wake up in the morning. As you know, I make my way to my, <clears throat> my chair of prayer. Sometimes I do just laying in bed. And I just begin to confess sin and stuff and junk and just ask for cleansing and forgiveness. And, and, and as I'm doing that, I, I literally transition from that to Holy Spirit, fill me up. Because you, you look throughout the entire book of Galatians, especially Galatians 5, there's this battle of trying to do things in the flesh and by the law in particular and do things in the spirit. And so Paul says, walk by the spirit because if you don't, you'll gratify the sinful nature of the flesh. So I'm like, who? I want to be yoked to Jesus. So I'm going to confess and I'm going to move on and I'm going to ask Holy Spirit that you'd fill me and guide me throughout the day. Have we ever asked him to make us more meek? Meekness comes about when we surrender to the Holy Spirit. I love, I I just, I'm amazed at how amazing the Holy Spirit is in our lives. 
You see, when he fills us, he gives us the power to do things we otherwise wouldn't do or can't do or won't do. You might want to write this down. It's a little long, but I think it's pretty good. Meekness is not merely the absence of pride and arrogance so much as it is, you ready? As it is the fullness of the presence of God. We say it again. Meekness is not merely the absence of pride and arrogance so much as it is the fullness um, of the presence of God where pride and arrogance cannot abide. You get that? When I'm so full of the Holy Spirit, when I'm so yoked to Jesus, like pride and arrogance comes knocking at my door. Hello! And I'm like, sorry, can't come in. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be led by the Spirit. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to think that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. I'm I'm just not going to. And pride and arrogance is like, "I, I got nowhere to go. If we want to cultivate meekness in our lives, we look to Jesus, we receive and we believe the word of God. Um, we live by the Spirit. And lastly, this is a hard one. We put up with people that we don't want to put up with. A meek person seeks to give grace to others and puts up with imperfect people. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, um, I, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Like we all have this calling. Isn't that awesome? Be completely humble and gentle. Be meek. Be patient. Here it is. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of of peace. We need to be reminded. Please, please hear this. That nobody is perfect except God alone. Hey, your spouse will disappoint you. Your boss will do you wrong. Your children will fail you. Your neighbor will make you upset. Right? Even Fluffy, your dog, will make you mad at times. Right? Your friends will let you down. Your church will drop the ball at times. Your pastor will meet all your expectations. The time will come when you will, now get this, it's really important. You will have a legitimate gripe. You will be right and they will be wrong. This is the crossroads of meekness. What are you going to do? Which path will you take? Jesus was right. What path did he take? Moses in Numbers 12 was right. What path did he take? Will you launch some arrows of of condemnation or even give a cold shoulder for a week or a month or a decade? You're missing the point if you're like, well, they did me wrong. That's what it means to overlook. Even though they did you wrong, you overlook. Yeah, but that doesn't come natural. When I'm yoked with Jesus, I do unnatural things. When I'm filled with the Spirit of God, I do unnatural things. We're a peculiar people, y'all. We're peculiar. Before you make that decision to rebuke, to condemn, to not forgive, remind yourself of how gentle Jesus is towards you. Well, I want that. Why, yeah, right? 
So does your neighbor, your spouse, your dad, your child, your boss, that weird uncle at the reunion, right? But it feels so good to be so bitter. It feels so right. The writer of Proverbs says it feels great going in, but as it goes down, it completely destroys We can choose to live our lives disappointed and angry uh, with everyone around us, or we can be armed with the, the virtue of meekness and enter into the blessing of authentic community. Okay, one final thing as the worship team comes back up. As we've seen in the first two, we'll see throughout the rest of these, these beatitudes, there's always a promise attached to the, to the actual beatitude. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, Jesus said, Blessed, happy are the meek. Here's the promise, for they will inherit the earth. You say, well, Lee, what does this mean? It means that the movers and shakers of this world, they are seeking to gain for themselves. And this gain is given instead to those who refrain from moving and shaking. (laughs) They're moving and shaking and... They're winning all the battles and they're making all the money and they're, they're stepping on people along the way and woohoo! And one day, if not emotionally in the moment, one day physically, all that will be taken away and given to the meek. The very attitude that the power brokers of this world mock is the very one that the Son of God rewards with all things. And we see this promise in two ways. First, there's a sense in which the meek, that is the true disciples of Christ, have this inheritance already. To inherit something implies that someone is given something by someone else on the basis of a relationship. The Bible tells us that God has appointed Jesus to be heir of all things, Hebrews 1. The Apostle Paul writes in in Ephesians chapter 1, in him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. He also writes, I want you to see this in Romans 8 and verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What does this mean? It means that the meek are inheritors of the earth because they are joint heirs with Christ. They're in in a sense, a very real sense right now, we are inheriting the earth because we're connected to Jesus. But there's also a future aspect of this promise as well. When Jesus says that we'll inherit the earth, he means it quite literally. Inherit in the Greek means to receive an allotted portion. Inherit is also a future tense verb. You say, what does that mean? It means it's a millennial promise. In other words, in that day, when the believer comes into the completeness of their inheritance, it is then that that promise found in this beatitude will find its complete fulfillment. Let me close with a John Stock quote. It's really good. John Stott said this, the godless may boast and throw their weight around, yet real possession eludes their grasp. The meek, on the other hand, although they may be deprived and denied by men, yet because they know what it is to live and reign with Christ, can enjoy and even possess the earth, which belongs to Christ. Then on the day of regeneration, there will be a new heaven and a new earth for them to inherit. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed, happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Two last thoughts about this beatitude. They're very fast. Number one, it is a call of blessing if you're already in the kingdom. Boy, it is. I can't wait. I'm enjoying it now, but I can't wait for the millennial promise that's going to be mine, my allotted portion. Secondly, though, second thought, it's a call of invitation if you are not. There was a reason that Jesus was quiet before his enemies. There was a reason that he didn't call down 72,000 angels to incinerate his foes. He did that for you. He did it for me. He did it for the sins of the world. The Bible says that there had to be a perfect sacrifice, that bulls and goats and sheep didn't cut it. It was the sinless son of man who held his tongue and held his power so that he would go to a cross and die for your sins and mine. And so the invitation this morning isn't just for those who are already in the kingdom to experience meekness. The invitation is come into the kingdom. You say, well, what do I do? Right there in the quietness of your seat, or maybe you want to come up and talk to somebody. As a matter of fact, I'm going to ask our prayer team to come up right now. They're going to come up here to my right, my left, and on the sides and in the back. Of course, I'll be up here as well and others that you may know. Maybe you want to talk to somebody about that. You're like, what does it mean to be in the kingdom? What does it mean to know Jesus as Savior and Lord? And we'll talk about that. For others, you may want to come up and just just say, hey, I need to talk to somebody about this. My life has not been yoked to Jesus. Anything, Anything but that. And I'm not experiencing this, this easy, I wouldn't say an easy life, but the, the easiness that Jesus calls us to have when we yoke ourselves to him. Come talk to somebody. Pray with somebody. Uh, as you know, what we do on a regular basis here, if you don't, I'll tell you right now, is that we take communion. Sometimes we take it together. Um, that's rare. We'll pass it out. Usually there's an opportunity for you to go take it Um, on the sides there or in the back and we would encourage you to find someone uh, to do it in community but it's an opportunity for you to say Jesus thank you for your sacrifice thank you for your blood that was shed thank you that you're going to come back and rescue us thank you let me encourage you to do that maybe you're here this morning and you have noticed this baptismal off to my left Um, it is a portable baptismal but it it is warm Don't don't be afraid of it and you're like, I need to get baptized. I've made a decision to follow Jesus, and now as an act of obedience, I, I need to go and tell everyone I'm a Christ follower. I need to be buried, so to speak, my sins buried, and then risen up as a new creation. And I want to do that. If you want to do that, come up and talk to one of us. We have towels. We don't have bathing suits. That would be weird. But we have towels. And, uh, you know, take all your electronics out and get baptized. Be obedient. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example. We thank you that even though the Beatitudes at times feel impossible, they're possible because the Spirit of God lives inside of us and we can do all things through you. That we can be yoked. We can walk in and through and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can live a life of meekness and gentleness that isn't passive, but is powerful in you. Father, I pray this morning for those here who don't know you. We pray that today would be the day of salvation. We ask God that they would, uh, as, as you are convicting them of truth and righteousness, they would respond in faith. We commit all this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.